Dave Chang is an avid student and fan of sports, music, art, film, and of course, food. With a rotating cast of guests, they have conversations that cover everything from the creative process to his guests' guiltiest pleasures. Follow The Dave Chang Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube. Car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. David, what's on your mind today? Um, well, you can probably tell by the sound quality here that I'm absent a recording device. I made it to, I came to the beach without that. all the technology, all the requisite technology for podcasting, um, which is crazy after a year of not having any sort of home base. I've managed to muff it up at the exact, at the, at the end. But I'm at the Jersey Shore, which is, um, I feel like is my ongoing project of explaining New Jersey as a new New Jersey and people is a uh, remarkably beautiful place that bears only the faintest resemblance to everything that I would have thought it was before the first time I came out here. So I'm, this is basically just a pro Jersey Shore PSA. Uh, it's an amazing place to go. Oh, and wow. I, we, we lived in New York for like 20 years without ever like whiffing the Jersey Shore. You know, I mean, it just seemed like a place that you would never go or never think to go. You, you know, ride on a, like a, an apple truck out to Fort Tilden before you would ever, you know, take a train to the Jersey Shore. It's beautiful out here. That's it. You should come to the Jersey Shore the next time you're on the East Coast. Wait, so this is just a straight PSA. I was waiting for the journalism hook. Like I, I, I spent up... the whole week looking for a journalism hook, and there's no journalism <laughs> hook. I mean, I, could, I was I could make it about like report, you know, like tell the truth, don't you know, quit hiding behind your lies and your assumptions, mm-hmm. and, and report what the real Jersey Shore is all about. But maybe people just want to keep it a secret. The lazy I'm a, I'm, tropes I'm actually, of the mainstream media relying on the old reality show when wanna, when they should I be, be doing. Clear, I'm at a I'm, I'm at a it's it's actually sort of almost comical i'm at a place called ocean city which is a one may 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 be responsible for some of my you know rosy-eyed view of the whole thing but it's a dry part of the jersey shore specifically so that you know there's not restaurants with booze there's not bars or whatever and it's just so that like families can come out and have fun without dealing with the riffraff but every time you tell somebody in advance you're going like literally anybody that has ever been to the jersey shore if you say you're going to ocean city they're like oh yeah that's the that's the dry place right like they're all disappointed but it's just magical like you actually hear people saying out loud like this is how the beach used to be when i was a kid and stuff it's just it's it's a great place to be i think you should do some jersey shore diner journalism mm. 
like people used to do in Trump country where you go in and see if people are talking about Biden's infrastructure plan? <laughs> see if they're talking about critical race theory. What What is on the mind of people in the Jersey Shore diner? That's what I want you to come back with next week to the ringer. I don't know if the diner is is the place to go. I could go to like the pizza. I can go to Menko and Menko. One of like the three Menko and Menko's on this stretch of the Jersey Shore, which, by the way, pizza journalism. I don't know why it hasn't found its way out here. This is actually the best pizza in the world. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, Dave, Dave Portnoy kind of cornered that market. So we're that's all right. He's probably been to Menko and Menko. Coming up on today's show, we answer your listener mail about topics ranging from post-Trump White House journalism to NBA playoff coverage. A member of a beloved band adds to our list of only in journalism words. And this is exciting. A press box post-game interview with the New York Times geniuses that wrote the greatest headline about Moray Eels in journalism history. All that and more on the press box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. media consumers brian curtis and david shoemaker here along with our producer erica cervantes david you want to answer a little listener mail before we get to today's big interview okay here we go from mr media x see we have some really famous reporters who listen to the press box but they don't want to be named on the press box they prefer a pseudonym so this is from mr media x (laughs) famous reporter at a big newspaper That's, that's all i can say It's Maggie Haberman. Just go ahead and say it out loud. (laughs) Well, I don't know about that. We are almost six months into a new presidential administration, Mr. Media X writes. And one of the things you discussed on the show a while ago was whether or not the end of the prior presidency, which consumes so much media attention, would bring new oxygen and life to non-White House subjects and coverage areas that have been largely drowned out over the past four years. Do you think that is happening? Do I think that the oxygen is returning to the to the areas that were previously neglected? Is that the question? I think so. Yeah, I kind of feel like with a vengeance, right? I mean, I, I feel like the maybe I mean, I, maybe I'm a, a partial, I mean, a, an odd view of this, but I do feel like people are like when you go on vacation. If you're like a real, if you if you work out a lot and you go I'm on vacation right now, you go on vacation. <laughs> Wait, is this Rosillo or is this yeah, David no, no, talking here? Yeah, if you're a Rosillo, if you go on vacation, you're like looking for ways to get your exercise in. Even though, like, if you're an avid cyclist and suddenly you're at the beach, like I am now, and you're like, I'm not going to get my cycling in. Like, what do I do? Do I just go for an up tempo walk? I do feel like there's all this energy that the news media is trying to get out, and it's energy that was that found its appropriate tempo with our previous president, right? Or maybe not, or, or it was or it was created by the tempo established in our previous presidency. And now there's a sort of antic energy that people are trying to discuss, you know, bipartisan infrastructure deals with the same sort of, uh, yeah, energy as they would deal with, like, you know, Trump literally telling people to murder journalists or whatever, you know, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a whole different set of stories, but they're trying to find the appropriate footing for it. And it just feels very sort of like there's, I mean, they're putting more energy into kind of basic political discussions than people were willing to do four years ago or eight years ago or 12 years ago. So yeah, I do think that I do think we see a real eager investment in the normalcy that, or the normal aspects of of presidential governance. Um, And I think it's even more so than it was before. My slightly different take is that I wonder if, Trump era journalism was really that weird in retrospect, because in a way, what was 
absolutely consumed by Trump was cable news number one and Twitter number two. Now, if you think if you open the New York Times, the New York Times was maxing out on Trump, like basically any subject other than a war or a terrorist attack or something. And yet I could still go to the Science Times and find lots of other stories. I could still find a huge international report every day in the front section. But it was particular parts of the media that were just just mainlining Trump news. You're right, though. It's funny now because it's not like the people that were covering Trump. I mean, some of them are still covering Trump. And you mentioned Haberman. Some of them are writing books. Okay, but the political press corps, it's not like they're like, okay, uh, we're going to take a walking journey across Europe and write something else for a change. They're still covering politics. It's so we just replaced one political story with another political story. And I don't know that I don't know that there's like new breadth in the political media that they're talking about things that they wouldn't have talked about under Trump. In fact, I think it's just different political stories for the most part about the Democrats, about Biden, about the Republicans using critical race theory, all those kinds of things have sort of filled the void to me. Sure. And I mean, and obviously we're, we're, we all look at this in a very personal way, right? I do think that, I think that the, you're right. They weren't pulling people off of the local beats just to like cover Trump's tweets, or at least they didn't do it on some sort of like apocalyptic scale. Um, so yeah, I mean, there was a, probably a lot more, it, the, the, the political journalism landscape was probably changed a whole lot less than maybe it seemed in real time. Um, Again, yeah. I think it's particular parts of it. Like if you watch cable news, it was just all about Trump. Mm-hmm. Trump said blank, you know, for a long part of it, at least until those kind of cable networks got a little bit wise to the game. But I think if you just read, quote unquote, normal organs of journalism, I don't think they were as Trump focused as we perhaps think they were the whole time. I think they were a little more focused than they would be on a normal president. But I don't know that they were just completely, you know, the sports page was not Trump. Well, I guess it kind of was. You're right. And to a similar degree that, I mean, you said cable news and you said Twitter, right? And, and, and cable news, I think it's, I mean, that's obvious. I think with Twitter too, it's not even so much what the media outlets are doing as the way that, that political journalism is being received. And it's being received in a, I mean, by you and me and by everybody else who is, you know, following the New York Times on Twitter in a very, well, Trump centric or post Trump sort of way, right? I mean, we're all engaging. There's a whole sort of generation of of very public writers and thinkers and just personalities that are engaged with politics in a different way than or in a new way than they were four years ago. So, yeah, I think that it's I think that there's a lot of runoff there, too. This is from Jay Fisher. There seems to be a lot of coverage about Conan O'Brien ending his TBS show, even though he's still going to have a new show from the same media company. Why such a big deal about a talk show host who really isn't going anywhere? Well, there's two, I think there's two different ways to answer this question. One, um, is because they're, they're, po- I mean, they're positioning it as an in, right? And so, the, like, and so by virtue of the existence of the press release, if anybody's reacting to it, everybody's reacting to it, and now we all have to deal with it. But I think, I think there's a much sort of deeper question, and I say this only semi jokingly, you know, whoever the first boxer was that decided to, retire post-match knowing full well that it wouldn't be the end of the road they got it right right because it was they figured out that if you retire at the end of the match you have the most eyeballs on you and your retirement and and so your career means more than it would have if you 
waited six months, decided that it was really over and then retired. Right. And then when you come back, the comeback is the story. And it's even bigger because you retired in front of millions of people. There's a, it's, it's a great way to drive ratings, right? It's a great way to drive eyeballs, attention, whatever else. But I, but even more significant than that is that we as a journalistic class and as a viewing public, have much more fun eulogizing somebody when they're not dead, right? I mean, if you have, it's a much, it's a much more, it's a, it's a much more, listen, writing, writing a, a Conan career retrospective two years ago would have gotten, wouldn't have gotten very many people to read it, right? But doing it now because he's quote unquote retiring, everybody's paying attention to this and there's multiple pieces and you're weighing them against each other and you get to think and enjoy and watch all the YouTube videos of all your favorite Conan moments and you get to do it as if he's actually done or as if he's actually dead, heaven forbid. But you don't actually, <laughs> but you don't actually have to deal with any of the gravity of that situation. It's like, it doesn't matter that he's leaving and coming back or leaving for good or whatever. It's like somebody just announced that this was National Conan O'Brien Day and we're all taking off work to celebrate and like get drunk. It's fantastic. Totally. And the irony is that he has spent the last decade doing a show that as far as I can tell, nobody is really watching on TBS. Mm-mm. Like Rob Harvilla wrote this great piece early in the ringers uh, life cycle. That was like, by the way, Conan is doing a show every night. <laughs> and you know, all you people who were way into late night and way into the whole tonight show succession thing, he is still working. He is still doing the show, but you're not really paying attention and it's not penetrating you know the twitter world as much as colbert and those guys are on a nightly basis and it was just so funny that now we're all sort of like it's kind of like letterman right the last decade plus of letterman was awful i mean Mm -hmm. just just at the in fact the last show of letterman was like this is the best you could come up with these jokes are terrible but it's like now we sort of we do that thing where we forget the lean years and we're like oh my god conan o'brien Remember watching him in your dorm room in the 90s when he was doing the year 2000 and Triumph and the George W. Bush thing with a mouth and all that stuff? You're like, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. Conan O'Brien. And it is. And it, I mean, I do get the point uh, that Jay's making, but Conan has hosted a late night talk show since 1993. <laughs> so even though it's a different show with the same company, I get all that. But that, that is, I guess, a big deal that you're shoving off. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a big deal. And we love Conan. And, and I'm, I'm excited to have read every piece. I mean, and Rob wrote a new piece yesterday about it. It's a, it's, it, I'm excited to read every piece I get to read about Conan. Right? It's, it, and I'm glad that this holiday was announced, regardless of whether or not he's actually leaving. And regardless of whether or not, you know, like you said, you, you believe him to have been in retirement. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be forgiven if you thought he retired eight years ago or whatever. But he's, uh, you know, this is this is. We all get to celebrate together. That's the joy of it. Late night succession is one of those subjects that still carried like tons of journalistic weight, even after it mattered way less in actual practice. Mm -hmm. Like Johnny being replaced by Jay or Dave. That was a huge deal because there were still lots of eyeballs on those shows. The networks were still pretty vital. Now, as demonstrated by Conan's last decade on the air, people don't care about that stuff at all at least they don't really care about it other than the random clip they see on twitter yeah and yet you can still drive a ton of 
eyeballs, just like you can with like cable news succession or cable news behind the scenes with late night stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like the late night beat never got turned off. Even when people literally turned off the late night shows, it's just very funny to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it, it does seem at times that people are much more interested in like, you know, SNL casting decisions or who's hosting the show oh. and performing on the show than they actually care about the show. There's a great one. SNL. It's like yeah. this huge journalistic, like the New York times is still recapping every episode of SNL. <laughs> You're like, really? <laughs> okay. That's interesting. This is from BPM Twitter. Uh, forget TV ratings. What happens to local media when untraditional teams make deep NBA playoff runs? How many people in Atlanta are being shifted to Hawk stories? Are people in Phoenix angling to get on the Suns beat and hope the team sustains a la Golden State Warriors becoming a media career maker? Ooh, that's a good one. Well, I think this is different than Golden State because it's, uh, at least at the moment, because it's a little bit more out of left field for both those markets. Um, Golden State was a sort of, as soon as Steve Kerr was hired, I mean, they obviously had a ramp up under... Um, the previous, uh, Mark Jackson administration and, uh, you know, and, and, and Curry was there and the kind of the hype was growing, but sort of as soon as Kerr walked onto the court, they were suddenly just this, you know, just monolith, you know, I mean, they were the, just this, I mean, such a, just monster out of nowhere in the NBA and they changed the way basketball was played and all this other stuff was going on so that, by the time they got started making runs in the playoffs, the journalistic infrastructure was already sort of established there, right? And and it was and it did make careers and it was a big deal. Also, you know, the Oakland, I mean, the Bay Area is was growing, was then growing, is constantly growing, at least in terms of wealth, if not in terms of, uh, you know, just population. But and so there's there's the urgency there. I mean, and there's and there's probably the the ability to have more beat writers covering the team. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why that was making careers and why it seemed like a sort of bigger deal at the time. These two, you know, Atlanta and Phoenix, I mean, Phoenix was the number one team all season, but Phoenix is always kind of seen as, a, as I think there's a different perception about that team. Atlanta certainly come out of nowhere. And Phoenix can also be covered by the West Coast newspapers. So I don't know. I'm sure there are people in Phoenix that are that are angling for that job. And I'm I'm sure that, you know, if if this team stays together, that the Phoenix newspapers will probably staff up a little bit more. But we might be past that point. We might be past the point of any media market really staffing up a whole bunch more based on the success of a team because, you know, it's, it's place, it's, it's, it's other, you know, kind of national internet outlets that are going to be staffing up there. Yeah. I think it's moving chess pieces around maybe more than staffing up. Hey, you know, you, the, uh, backup, the person who swings around but does a lot of backup diamondback stories, we're going to need you for the next couple of weeks. Mm hmm. You're on, you're on the suns. Hey, you know, person who's the third sports person at the local affiliate, just you, you are camping out on suns for the next couple of weeks, kind of all hands on deck. We're not necessarily adding bodies, but all the people we have in our diminished capacity, they're going there. It is absolutely a career maker. This is one of those things that <laughs> it's funny. You can be the exact same, uh, NBA writer in Minnesota as you can be in Phoenix. And if Phoenix wins the NBA finals and goes to a couple more, you're going to have much, much better career opportunities. If you're in Phoenix, 
That's how this has always worked. You're just going to have way more eyeballs on you. Mm -hmm. The other part of this, David, that's interesting, I think, is the national companies moving resources around. Because you and I both know ESPN and everybody else, they're much more ready to cover a deep Lakers or even Clippers run than they are to cover a deep Suns and Milwaukee Bucks run. Like they have Lakers infrastructure. Lakers mm -hmm. are good. Up, oh, Ramona Shelbourne, uh, Baxter Holmes, Dave McMenamin's already on the team. We got people in LA. You know, everybody's ready to go. And those people can kind of shift over and do the Clippers too. The Suns, essentially, you are taking people that are semi permanent LA basketball Lakers, Clippers writers, and then having to, you know, put them into Phoenix mm -hmm. where they may not have the contacts and the, and the experience just because they don't report on that all the time. So that's kind of the other interesting part of the story. And you remember ESPN did it with with the Warriors back in the day. Ethan Strauss and Chris Haynes were on that beat. Yeah. At the same, like, we was like, wow, we need, we need bodies here that we don't have because A, these teams are good, but B, this is, this is going to be, this is going to be the website and sports center every night. Mm -hmm. So we have to take resources and put them over there. It's an it's an interesting thing. I mean, is that a thing? If you were running an outlet, or say if you're running something as big as the Athletic, is that is that a way? Would you staff with that in mind? I mean, they have all these like hyper focused, you know, specialized beat writers. But would you? But, but is it worth having just like the hit squad? Who you, I mean, it's just like ten <laughs> writers that you just move deliberately as a unit where they are needed. You know, it's like the A team when when trouble calls or whatever. Uh -huh. they that they just go in and just hit the ground and start covering it wall to wall, or is that too hard? Is it, is that too, is that too much to, to expect of people who are not doing it day, covering the market day in and day out? If you have NBA content <laughs> and if you can find them, call the A team. Do, 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 do. Um, yes. And I think there's probably an argument in our leaner times for doing that rather than staffing every team all the time. Mm -hmm. Like in an ideal world, and we've seen this at various iterations of ESPN. We've seen this with the athletic basically all the way through. You just have a person everywhere. So somebody's doing it and then you can move some pieces in. I think the stripped down version of that is, uh-oh. And we've seen this like when the Pelicans were in the playoffs a couple of years ago. Uh-oh, we don't have a Pelicans writer. Uh, let's get so-and-so down there quick and do that, right? So it's almost like how many bodies can you spare? If you have people, you're, think, you have them there all the time. I think that the athletics... I think that the Athletics Phoenix writer left before the season and wasn't replaced. So, I mean, th there's there's definitely some instances of that going on right now, too. We've been doing this only in journalism list, David. These are words you read in an article, in a piece of journalism, but you never use in real life. Mm -hmm. This might be the most popular thing we've ever done on this podcast, just judging by the number of tweets I see every day. Would you like some additional words for the only in journalism list? Please. From the New York Times' very own Kevin Draper, stave off and emblazoned. Stave off and emblazoned. <laughs> All right. Uh, we got as a synonym for signed, like signed a contract, inked. Chris Paul inked a deal with the Phoenix Suns. Yeah, it's correct. Yeah. That one seems to me to have probably originally come out of headline writing where you have a very confined space. So you, you know, signed a contract as long. So you do inks packed P-A-C-T. <laughs> yes. Just so you can fit it all in. Uh, a few more fracas. <laughs> fracas, which is a funny word. That's another one that I, it's another one that I almost would dispute the, your pronunciation if I 
Re- oh, and then I realize I've never heard it out loud, so I don't. Fracas. Yeah. Fracas. I would say I would have said fracas. Beleaguered. Mm-hmm. Is a great one. I love this war chest. <laughs> Especially any reference in sports writing to draft picks. Mm-hmm. War chest. And the most amazing contribution we got this week was from John Flansburg, a member of the band They Might Be Giants. Oh, yeah. John Flansburg has checked in on Twitter. He writes, read the words only in journalism list. This is a start if anyone wants to complete. Are you ready for John Flansburg's personal list? Yes, I cannot believe this is happening right now. Let's go. Absconded. Bedlam. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> Bedlam. Disgraced. One of our <laughs> favorites. Demurred. Firebrand. <laughs> really fantastic. Uh, only in journalism word there. Flack. <laughs> Flummoxed. <laughs> indelible. You only write indelible. You never say the word indelible. Plethora. Myriad. And if it hasn't come up before, he writes, I suggest stymie. <laughs> stymie. Stymie is another one that has multiple pronunciations that just don't, none of them quite seem right. It seems like it's like, pecan, it's like pecan and pecan where it seems like their truth must lie somewhere in the middle, <laughs> but you can't quite make your mouth say it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've heard stymie a lot. That is unbelievable. I can't believe that we got, they, they might be giants is, is out here. Yeah, it was a listen. A lot of contributions to the only in journalism words list. Keep them coming. John we love Flansburg. it. Jeez, we're gonna have to revisit the um, the official the official band of the press box. After I know. Oh, although I did, I we we did listen to a whole lot of Gin Blossoms on the way out here. So we'll see. They were playing at halftime of the Suns game. The Gin Blossoms were. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, the, of the uh, in the previous round, I did notice by the way the Gin Blossoms unfollowed us on Twitter. So we may be. Uh, Oh. We may be in the market. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we can use this to our advantage. All right, here we go. <laughs> who, who really wants to be the official band of the press box? David, let's do the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious, but all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always, always gratefully received. Uh, news here from the Daily Beast, David. I got to read this to you. A massive country music festival in Kentucky this past weekend started off on rocky footing. Police found meth, marijuana, and an open bottle of alcohol in the first vehicle they stopped at a traffic checkpoint. And one of the two people in the car had two active warrants out for their arrest. Continuing uh, with the Daily Beast here. Police said that by the end of the five-day bash dubbed the Redneck Rave, one man had been impaled, one woman had been strangled to the point of unconsciousness, and one throat had been slit. This is at the so-called Redneck Rave in Kentucky. It was an overworked Twitter joke to call it Yaltamont. <laughs> Yaltamont. Thank oh you to God. Derek Burke for that one. And finally, David. Certain headlines are just just going to be magnets for overworked Twitter jokes. There was one from the New York Post this week. It reported that David Byrne, former Talking Heads frontman David Byrne, has bought a mansion in Los Angeles for $5.5 million. Mm-hmm. 
seemingly innocuous piece of real estate journalism. <laughs> I know where this is going. Go on. It was an overworked Twitter joke to remix Talking Head lyrics for David Byrne's new house. Now, I'm not sure I can do David Byrne as well as I could do the Gaston song, but here we go. I'm going to try. You mm-hmm. ready? Mm-hmm. He will not find himself living in a shotgun shack. David Byrne may find himself in a beautiful house. So this is David Byrne's beautiful house. And Byrne was heard asking, well, how did I get here? <laughs> Thanks to Ping33 for that. If you <laughs> That was a little bit more Larry David than David Byrne. But I, that was <laughs> I need some, I need some advice. I've, I've listened to less talking heads at this point in my life than I have Beauty and the Beast, which says something about me. If you mark the occasion of Brian's final musical performance, congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. All right, David, on Tuesday, the New York Times published a story about how moray eels can hunt not just in the water, but on land. Now, you had our clicks right there, but the story also contained this gem of a headline. When an eel climbs a ramp to eat squid from a clamp, that's a moray, as in moray eel. Now, the Twitter reaction to this headline was even bigger than when one of your journalist friends has some personal news. Quoting one, uh, the rest of us should take the day off because we'll never top this. Uh, Another person said, next year's Pulitzer settled real early. And my own reaction was that whoever writes the marine life headlines of the New York Times should be the next editor of the paper. I am absolutely convinced of that. It was, I think we could say the greatest eel-based headline of all time, and we're joined by the duo behind it. They are Sabrina Embler and Michael Rostin of the New York Times. Welcome to the Press Box. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you. Can we start at the beginning here? How did the eel hunts on land story get assigned in the first place? Um, so our colleague, Carl Zimmer, uh, who is kind of the everyman of uh, science journalism and, and has just covered you know everything for a very long period of time tweeted this video of these moray eels doing this very wild thing where they were climbing up onto some sort of land surface and, and eating 
bits of squid. And I, I saw this video, maybe it was a Friday night. I can't remember when. And uh, I just thought, wow, that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, and I, I, you know, I think in part because I've spent a lot of time on the internet and I'm, I'm a former social media editor and so on. I, I, my, my head immediately went into thinking about that's a more tweets because uh, it's, it's pretty common that when there's some sort of strange eel related content out there, particularly about moray eels that people will start talking about, uh, you know, this, this long standing pun format. Uh, and it turned out that, you know, the research itself that underlied these videos is pretty interesting. So Sabrina, I can't remember if I talked to you on Monday or if I talked to you uh, at some other point, but uh, I said, I, you know, we, we, we thought this was pretty interesting and, and assigned it, um, just knowing that it would be sort of the nice combination of interesting science, great visuals, uh, and the potential for a lot of silliness that uh, can, can occasionally make for a good short science item in this, this format that we call the trilobites. Um, that's, so that's, yeah. the, that's how it got started. I mean, I think Sabrina can talk a little bit more about how they wrote it. Well, it was, it was a gift of a Slack message to receive just an eel video unsolicited. Um, yeah. And it was, it was a joy to report. Um, the researchers spent six years training these eels, which is a really, really long time. And I mean, there were lots of eel mishaps along the way. Um, but yeah, Michael had the vision for the meme that would govern the story. So the piece started out, I mean, the headline started out as a, or the piece started out as a headline or, or is it the search for a headline? Is that the right way to say it? I think there's a little bit of that dimension to it uh, that I, I think we're both, I, I mean, I, I don't think either of us wants to claim that, you know, we're the, we're the original author of this, this format of, uh, you know, that's a more you know, headlines. Um, I, mean, I, don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's been used as a headline, you know, in, in sort of, you know, traditional media before, but I think there's certainly been a lot of, you know, great tweets and, you know, Tumblr memes and things like that, that have gone around for a number of years that have sort of played on the Dean Martin song, That's Amore. And, uh, I'm I'm a great lover of these jokes when they when they go around. I'm a great I, I enjoy making these jokes, um, but you know I think we're also just sort of interested in moray eels as a species. Uh, so I think that <laughs> I think even if even if we hadn't um, you know had this headline in mind, I think seeing the idea that moray eels can sort of clamor up on land and this is how they do it that you know researchers had spent all this as Sabrina said, very intensive effort to sort of understand how is it that these sea creatures are able to actually get up on land and actually eat something? Because biologically, you would think that they have to sort of suck in water in order to eat. And it turns out that actually they don't. That's kind of unusual. And, you know, the visuals were great. So I think when you put the whole package together, it was it was worth doing. Sabrina, this is a corner of journalism that David and I are not familiar with at all. So what's the process of reporting a story about moray eels? So this is a story based on a study. Uh, so I reached out to the researchers on the study who sort of shared like, I mean, they yeah, they talked about the training process. This researcher worked with like a rotating cast of undergrads um, who were the ones who were sort of putting the squid on the ramp <laughs> uh, so the eel could clamber up and, and eat it. Um, and then I talked to um, one of the uh, other authors on the paper, Kyle Donahoe, who... Um, 
was the one who sort of developed a very intensive training regimen for the eels. Um, and he was working with Rita Mehta, who's the other author in the paper. And Kyle had previously worked with training pinnipeds at a pinniped lab. So he worked with seals and sea lions. And apparently like all of the same skills that you need to train marine mammals, like also work with eels, which are just like very specific regimens, like same time every day, same amount of squid um, and just a lot of patience. I love that the eel is called a snowflake moray eel. Such a loaded <laughs> term here in 2021. It's an eel that was made to be memed. <laughs> yeah. Well, well and, and, and Sabrina brought the, the bucatini into it, which is another sort of crucial 2020 yeah. pasta. So pasta of the year. That was an excellent metaphor right off the top. Uh, well done on that one, too. Um, so, that, I mean, that's incredibly interesting how you went about researching the whole thing. Um, and it does give sort of, you know, a weight to the story. It's, I mean, it's, it was an incredibly fun read with or without the headline. But do you feel, what's the sense of accomplishment that you feel when the headline, when the story goes viral to the degree that it did? It's horrifying. <laughs> My second week working here and it was so overwhelming and I have done no media training. So I hope, yeah, I hope everything goes okay. Um, but I've never received so many messages from like my high school model UN chair, like people like in a frat, like from my college, just like people I have never thought of in years, um, sort of reaching out to talk to me about eels, which is um, wonderful and also scary. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I think uh, there's there's a lot of you know ways to get recognition in journalism, um, and uh, you know this this was a fun one. Although I think sometimes I, I joke around about the idea, you know, that you're, you're using your 15 minutes of fame on the wrong thing. <laughs> so, so you know, maybe maybe uh, you know, we, we we hope there's still some some time left on on the clock for both of us. Well, we've been, I mean this this podcast has not been exist in existence for a terribly long period of time, but we have in its short life charted like the 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 death and rebirth of the art of headline writing. Right? I mean, it was it was we have discussed in relative long form how like SEO came to dominate the headline game in the past. I mean honestly, the past five years, but, you know, the past decade for sure. Do um, you feel like you're kind of like fighting the good fight back against that? Or do you feel like the tide in a more broad sense has turned against SEO and pro poetry? No pun intended on the tide <laughs> part, but please continue. Well, we're, we're, we're fortunate, I think, that we've got a various tools and various ways of expressing ourselves. Um, you know, so it's like, I think one thing that we do spend time thinking about uh, at least, at least in the, the editor's desk, is uh, what's the headline going to look like on the website, and what's the headline going to look like downstream on social media, and what's the headline going to look like on search engines when it surfaces on those platforms, and even in some cases, what's the headline going to look like in print? Because at least for the uh, Weekly Science Times section, um, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of those discussions about about how this stuff is going to get laid out ultimately. Um, so I, I don't, I think you can sort of, you know, walk and chew gum, uh, you know, with, with both your, your main jaws and your, your pharyngeal jaws, uh, as, <laughs> if you're a more eel. Um, you know, I, I think you can, you can do that because there, there is the ability to sort of think about very different formats and how to reach people on a variety of different platforms and audiences all at the same time. Um, you know, cause I'm, I'm interested in exposing our, 
our reporting and our our journalism to new readers. Uh, and I'm also interested in um, you know satisfying the readers that that live primarily on our platform, the you know NewYorkTimes.com, as well as uh, you know our, our our apps. And so I think you know an editor these days kind of has to think about all of those things. Um, you know, personally speaking, I, I I sort of thought this this headline you know sort of was optimized for SEO because it had the word eel in it and it had the word moray in it. Um, you know, so so I think you know for people who are searching for those sorts of things, they <laughs> might have you know found this kind of story. But at the same time, it also had. Uh, you know, this sort of fun phrasing. So I, I think you really can do all of these things sometimes. And um, it's it's sort of good to look for opportunities like that when it's possible to do so. And is the thinking, Michael, that people will click on a story if they find it on social media because the headline is funny? Uh, sometimes, right. But I think sometimes it's just the most appropriate way to engage people with a subject if the subject is kind of unusual. Um, you know, you want to sort of pull them in that way. Um, I, I don't, I mean, personally, I don't try to write a punny headline for every single kind of story that I, I, I edit or that I, that I assign, uh, because I think, you know, sometimes you can just try too hard and it can, it can seem that way. Uh, but I think, you know, other times there, there are, uh, you know, just sort of opportunities because something is sort of strange and delightful and, you know, you should sort of try to communicate the, the strangeness and the delight at the same time. And I, I think that's one of the wonderful, wonderful things about working in science journalism. I've, I've worked in other fields of journalism pretty extensively before I became a science editor five years ago. I was a social media editor. I was worked in a lot of politics and breaking news coverage, things like that. Um, and I think one of the great things about science journalism is that there's just so much wonder um, in a lot of the discoveries and trying to sort of conjure that, that wonder uh, is something that I, I really aim for with, with a lot of the headlines that I write for certain kinds of, of science stories. More wonder than perhaps headlines about the infrastructure bill this week. But, I, but, I, but that's also a wondrous thing. <laughs> well, for certain people. I do want to note the additional layer of genius here, which is not just the top headline, but the fact that the bit was continued throughout all the captions in the piece, I can read a few of these. If the squid is too flat, there's no problem with that. That's a moray. If the squid is so big, it still eats like a pig. That's a moray. Who, whose idea was it to keep going even after <laughs> the great idea right at the top? Oh, well, I, I guess I take credit for that. I think I, I, I sent Sabrina, a, a, a Slack message that said, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to run this into the ground. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and we sort of kept it going, uh, throughout, throughout, um, I think part of it was, uh, when, when Sabrina first put the story together, uh, in, in our content management system, they wrote this series of tweets. And I, I looked at that and I thought, oh, well that, that would make a pretty good Twitter thread. If we just, just did all of those, that's Amore's like back to back to back on, on Twitter. Uh, and then I got to thinking, well, why not put on the page too? Uh, you know what, you know, what, why not both as the classic, uh, you know, Twitter taco meme goes. Um, so, so yeah, I think, uh, there, there was an opportunity to do more with it. And, and so we did. You talked about conveying the wonder of it. I think Sabrina did a pretty good job of conveying the horror of the, you know, the social media impact. Um, that this sort of thing can have. I think the real horror is probably going to come when this article pops up on like a a, 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 a PowerPoint presentation from somebody in the E-suite of the New York Times, you know, six months from now when they're trying to explain to people how to how to make it, you know, drive ad revenue or something. And that'll be its own <laughs> sort of horror. But, you know, Sabrina, you said you're two weeks in. I 
I hesitate to make this too much of a horror story about you, but do you, is this going to affect the way that you do your job now that you see the sort of response that a piece like this or that a piece driven like this can get? I mean, I, I, I hope not. I, I love eels. I love writing about strange creatures that might not be considered like big news or like breaking stories. Um, and so it was really, it was actually really wonderful to see so many people engaging with <laughs> moray eels and their second set of internal jaws, um, which is like something that I, I find very cool and fascinating. And I learned that people find like grotesque and monstrous. Um, so it's been fun to see the differing reactions to the actual videos of the different eels sort of hawking back the squid, and like pulsing their neck um, to get it down. But yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I, I feel a renewed belief in the commitment to a bit, to just taking a bit to its final <laughs> final stages um, in the paper of note. And I'm I'm excited for all the headlines to come. And you've got a book coming on Undersea Life. <laughs> Is that correct? I do. Yeah. What is what is the what is the appeal of that subject for you? I just love the ocean. I've been asked that a lot of times and I, I don't know if there's like a single origin point, but I love being in the sea. I love seeing all the weird creatures. I think I have like a special fondness for invertebrates. Um and anything that kind of slimy on the outside, like I really dig that concept as a body plan um or a body texture. Uh, so yeah, I, I really, I really love sea creatures and I'm excited to be able to write about them outside of work and also for work. I was asking Michael a little bit about this before the podcast started. This is not the first Marine life headline at the New York times. We have celebrated here on the press box. There was one in 2019 that I made David guess. It was about sea snakes <laughs> and it was also brilliant. It was, she studies sea snakes by the sea floor. A great pun on she sells seashells by by the seashore. Michael, you did not write this. You you write you wrote the one you co-wrote the one great marine life headline, but you did not write this previous marine life headline. Is that right? That uh, that was not one of mine. Uh, I'm I'm not sure if that one was was written by uh, our, our colleague Alan Alan Burdick or not. I, I think he edited that story. Uh, I think the, the story was written by, by Debbie Lockwood, who I think, uh, like, like Sabrina was, was a reporting fellow for the times previously. Uh, uh and I, I, you know, I don't know if that was a co collaborative effort between the two of them or not. Uh, but it, yeah, certainly a fun one. When I asked Michael about this off the air, he goes, I don't know. We had multiple sea snake stories that year, <laughs> which I really appreciate coming from the New Too York Times. Is yeah. that the one about the grannies who were yeah. studying sea snakes? Okay. No, that's a that's a different one. Oh, that's so, the other sea snake. Yeah, okay. so there, there there were two sea, sea snake <laughs> stories, but yeah, the the fantastic grandmas was 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 the other one about the the you know the, the grandmas that the uh, the researchers sent out you know into the coral reefs to look for sea snakes, and they said that they were easier to work with than than graduate students, which which I thought was kind of funny. When we talk about the way that the office has changed in the sort of coronavirus era that we're all all in zoom and slack and anything else now this is what we miss we miss being in person with our coworkers to talk about all the different sea snake stories that have come across our desks in the past year <laughs> i'm making really serious this is the most fun i've had just listen overhearing people talk about work in over a year thank you guys so much for coming on and doing this you have um. You have, I, I know that you said michael early on that you weren't the first person to use the that's a more headline formulation uh in in um when when discussing eels but you know 
Michael Jordan didn't invent the slam dunk. He just perfected it, you know, and you, you guys have reached <laughs> a level of um, aesthetic or artistic perfection here that I think you should both be really proud of. Well, thank you so much. St- stay tuned. We hope we have some more, uh, s- some more, some more fun for everyone, uh, you know, who, who visits the the trilobite section of the New York Times or or our science and health pages in general. We yeah, will be watching I, the I trilobites. Was, I was reading through the comment section on the article, which is generally a bad thing to do, but in this mm-hmm. case, it was really lovely. But I did see that someone suggested that we should win a Nobel Peace Prize, oh. which I'm open to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, you know, I'll, 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 I'd be happy to share that prize money with you. So. <laughs> the Pulitzer was just the start. It really, is the Nobel <laughs> Peace Prize we're going for. Here. We, 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 you know, we want the, we want the, the PGOT. So, the thing, you know? <laughs> Sabrina and Michael, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Thank you. All right, it's time for David Shoemaker Guesses, the strained pun headline. Yeah. Monday's headline about a thief who was busted after posting a photo of Stilton cheese was cream doesn't pay. Today's headline comes from the LA Times, David, and it's a special occasion because I was informed this week that Steve Horn, who is a longtime editor on the LA Times sports desk, is retiring. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, you know how the LA Times sports headlines, the really punny ones often make their way to Twitter. Mm -hmm. Many of those are the work of Steve Horn. And in fact, people around the paper, when they see a particularly wonderful, clever Dada sports headline say, ah, that's a Steve Horn headline. Mm. So I thought I would do an LA Times sports headline here uh, in honor of Steve Horn's long and illustrious career at that paper. This is from Wednesday. You remember the DeAndre Ayton, Jake Crowder alley-oop that ended game two of the Western Conference Finals. The Suns Mm -hmm. beat the Clippers. Now, remember, remember, this is the LA Times, the Clippers hometown newspaper reporting this story. What was the LA Times' strained pun headline? Wow. I'm thinking, like, I immediately go to, like, don't forget to tip. Um... (laughs) <laughs> don't forget don't, don't forget, forget to guard the tip yeah yeah don't forget the tip um don't uh let's see tip in buzzer beater uh last second um uh eight eight there's some good eight and options where you got to give me some guidance here mm. all right so what wait, was it it was an alley oop it's an alley oop so that's gonna be that's gonna be a thing here. Oh, like oops, they did it again. Is that an alley? Is it nah, like an alley? A, come on now, I just saluted Steve Horn. Oops, they did it again. No alley oop. <laughs> Do you remember the funny uh, jerseys that are uh, not funny jerseys, but the special jerseys Phoenix has worn? Because those Suns. <laughs> yeah, no, no. They say the Valley. Oh yeah. Right. So it's not alley oop. It's no Valley oop. And in. The Clippers lost, so it's Valley Oops. Valley Oops. That's a lot going on there. Valley Oops. Congratulations on a brilliant career, Steve Horn. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes. We are back Monday. More lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian.